As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, what we know not, teach us by your spirit. What we have not, give us in your Son. And what we are not, make us for your glory. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 10. You can find that on page 1076 of many of our Pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 10, and we're going to read the first 12 verses together, Mark 1 through 10, 1 through 12. So this will be our text for this morning's sermon, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And he left there, that is Jesus, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, God, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, Well, we've said as we've been going through this section of Mark's gospel, I've said it a number of times to you, um, and because I do that, not just because I lack any original ideas, that's another problem for a different day, Um, but we learn by way of repetition. Uh, We go through the catechism multiple times because we want to repeat what we find there and learn through repetition. And so the thing I've been repeating to you again and again about this section of Mark's gospel is that there are two important points that he's meaning to convey to us. Um, First of all, what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. That's one of the points that's being conveyed. And the second is what is required of disciples if they want to follow him. Those are the two great themes of this section of the book of Mark all the way through the end of chapter 10. This is what he's meaning to convey to us. And it's not only good for us to keep that in mind so we just know that as a a Bible trivia fact, uh, but it's helpful for us as we go along to interpret the text we find in front of us. Because if we didn't know that that was the purpose of this section that this is what it was about to teach us about Christ and what's required for disciples to follow him, we might think that this discussion about divorce kind of comes out of nowhere, Uh, that it might just be a sort of strange transition from the kinds of things Jesus has been teaching his disciples in private and what comes here. 
But if we know how this section of Mark functions, if we know that one of the purposes is to teach us something about the Messiah, we'll understand why this functions here and why this makes sense as a continuing teaching tool for God's people. Because this particular section on divorce is revealing Jesus Christ to us as a prophet and a teacher. Indeed, the chief prophet and teacher of God's people. And that was one of the roles that Messiah was going to come and perform for God's people. He was going to lead them into truth. He was going to rightly help them understand the will of God for their lives. And as Jesus properly teaches about divorce here, as Jesus brings his light onto the word of God and shows the truth of what God had taught his people about marriage and about divorce, he reveals himself to be the chief prophet and teacher who was promised to come. But that is who Messiah has come to be, the chief prophet and teacher who reveals to us the will of God. Um, And that's what we see him doing here, and that's how this text is really functioning, to show us Christ's authority as the chief prophet and teacher that God's people need. And how do we see him doing that here? Well, first by passing a test. He passes the test that the Pharisees set for him, and then he proclaims the truth He sets them right about the things that we find here. And finally, he provides the solution to the problem this text reveals. And so that last point will be our shortest point. It won't really be about the text itself, but about the implications that that come to rise from the text. Uh, So if we get to the end of the second point, it feels like we've treated all the verses uh, we almost have. We just have a little bit more to say about the hope that Jesus Christ brings us in the situation that's mentioned here. So we want to think about the text in that way, that he passes the test, he proclaims the truth, and he provides the solution. Um, Jesus is put to the test here while he is on the move. Um, We're told that in the beginning of this text, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and and beyond the Jordan. Um, Jesus is on the move. From there was Capernaum. Remember, he was in a house in Capernaum teaching his disciples in private. And now we're told that he has left there and he's moved on to Judea beyond the Jordan. And what this is beginning is a journey that will lead fairly promptly in the book of Mark to Jesus coming to Jerusalem. He's been teaching his disciples about the mission of the Son of Man that he has come to suffer and to die and after three days to rise again. And Jesus is beginning that journey now towards Jerusalem uh, where he will suffer and die for his people on the cross. Um, And so this is an important movement in the book of Mark as Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. And we're told that while he is on the move, while he's making that trip, crowds once again are drawn to him. Um, He's moving on from Galilee now down to Judea beyond the Jordan, and these are places he's gone before. These are places we've heard of people coming to him before, so he has a reputation. We're told that crowds, again, are drawn to him as he's on the move. And Mark tells us that the compassion of our Lord that was such that whenever the crowds were drawn to him, he would teach them. And so he was once again teaching them, as was his custom, as the crowds are gathered to him. And with the crowds come the Pharisees. And the Pharisees come and ask him a question. And we're told that they ask this question in order to test him. And it's a question about divorce. And that's the question that they raise with him in verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
Uh, They want to get Jesus to weigh in on this question. Probably they are raising it to him because it was a much debated question among the rabbinical traditions at the time about what specifically was the permission regarding divorce that was found in the Old Testament. Um, The debate was not so much about whether divorce was permitted in any circumstance. Uh, They were pretty well agreed, all the rabbis, that divorce was permitted under certain circumstances. Uh, The debate was over what circumstances constituted sufficient circumstances to get a divorce. And the debate really centered on Deuteronomy 24.1. I'm sure you're all saying, of course, Deuteronomy 24.1. What what don't we know about that text? Um, But what what do we read there in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1? It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, then there were some other provisions that flowed from that. And so they said, well, clearly Moses permitted divorce. It's right there about giving a bill of divorce. The question is, what does it mean that the husband finds some indecency in her? How do we rightly understand that indecency language? Um, And they said, the experts of the law said it can't be adultery because the law prescribes, if there's a case of known adultery, death for the person committing adultery. So it can't be talking about that. So what is the indecency that would permit a man to send his wife away? And that was the range of debate among the rabbis. And there was one school that took a kind of conservative view of that, uh, said, well, clearly this is talking about a serious moral failure, um, something really serious, maybe short of adultery, but a serious kind of unchastity or unfaithfulness uh, that would warrant the husband taking this kind of action of divorcing his wife. So something really serious. But the other school of rabbinical thought said, no, we've got to be careful not to overdo the law. And what does the law say? It just has to find some indecency in her. And that language is kind of shifty as well. It's not clear exactly what those words mean. It could be some indecency or something shameful or some uncleanness. And they said, you know, Moses says some uncleanness, some indecency. So it doesn't really matter what the indecency is that the husband finds. If he finds it indecent and she loses favor in his eyes, then it permits a divorce. Um, They went so far as to say that means if she oversalts his dinner or burns his dinner and he finds that sufficiently indecent or shameful, he can send her away. Um, And this became the predominant view that really the righteous way of looking at this was to say, look, it's any indecency that causes him to find disfavor in her eyes. Now, why are we plumbing the depths of rabbinical debate? Um, Because this was the primary view of the time, and the Pharisees want Jesus to weigh in on this debate. So the rabbis have never been able to come to an agreement on this. The predominant view is that lax view that almost any, any kind of cause will do. So where do you come down, Jesus? And why do they want to know? Well, Mark tells us it's not because they're concerned with what Jesus thinks about the law or thinks that he can offer some insight. They do this in order to put him to the test. They do this in order to try to hurt him through the question they ask. 
And Mark doesn't tell us exactly how they're trying to hurt him, but we can kind of piece that together. It seems like the first thing, at least, that they're trying to do is erode his popularity. Right? To take a hard line on divorce and remarriage would be to take an unpopular line on divorce and remarriage. If all the legal experts of the day are saying, any cause will do, and Jesus comes along and says, you know, any cause won't do, um, it's not going to be a popular opinion. It won't be popular with the people, and it will allow them to attack Jesus as undermining the religious tradition, as they've loved to do so far. So at least they're probably hoping this will erode his popularity, if he doesn't give a good answer on this question. But there might be an even more sinister motive behind why they ask the question. It might not just be to erode his popularity. It might be to do it to endanger his person. Because Jesus has passed now into the region that was controlled by Herod. He's passed into that region that was under the control of King Herod Antipas, who we read about back in chapter 6. And if we remember what Herod did, he arrested John the Baptist, and eventually John the Baptist was executed. And do you remember what was the cause of John being picked up by Herod? Why Herod arrested him and why Herod's wife Herodias hated him so much? It was because of what John the Baptist was saying about marriage and divorce. He was going around saying, you know, it's not right that Herod's wife Herodias divorced her husband Philip and married Philip's brother Herod. He was going around saying to Herod, it's not right that you have your brother's wife. That's why Herodias had a grudge against him. That's why she was seeking to kill John the Baptist. And so maybe in the Pharisee's mind, hey, now he's in this region of Herod. If he's like John the Baptist, and he certainly has been like John the Baptist in a lot of ways, maybe if we can get him to say the wrong things about marriage and divorce here, we can get him in real trouble. Maybe we can get him to become really unpopular with the people, but maybe from the Pharisee's perspective, the best case scenario is maybe Herod will take an interest. And maybe he'll scoop him up and put him to death the way he put John the Baptist to death. This is perhaps a more sinister reason for the test they put him to. Of course, we all know what the Pharisees should have known. Um, you can't put Jesus to the test and win. Right, boys and girls, you know that. When someone tries to put Jesus to the test, we all hear that and we say, oh, that's not going to go well for you. Jesus knows more than you know. Jesus is wiser than the Pharisees are. Uh, He knows what's in their hearts. He knows what's going on with them. He's not going to fail a test. He's going to pass the test because he is the true God. I like what John Calvin said about putting Jesus to the test. He says, you know, he is the son of God. And what can be said about the Son of God is the same thing that the Scriptures tell us about God. And he went to Job chapter 5 and said, you can't mislead God or hope to test God because what does the Word say? Job 5, 12, and 13 says, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. 
He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. You cannot test God and win. He traps you in your own trap. And he does that by turning them back to the word of God. This is one of the ways Jesus has always responded to these tests of tradition. Whenever they've tried to get him to descend into the murk and the muck of these rabbinical debates, Jesus has always said, that's not really what's important, what the rabbis have said. What's really important is what the Lord has said. And you see how he passes the test by deftly turning the question around on them. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And what does Jesus do in response to that? He says, what does God's word say? What did Moses command you? You guys are the law experts. What did Moses command? Now, this is how Jesus has responded to these questions of tradition. And this is, I think, where the reformers learned this lesson of responding to tradition with the word of God. It really is not so important what men have said, no matter how long they've been saying it. The real question is, what does God say? And that's how Jesus really passes the test and turns it back on them, puts them on their heels by saying, what did Moses command you? What does God's law say? Um, And they have to admit that God's law um, does speak to this issue, and what does it say? Well, they say, um, referring again to Deuteronomy 24.1, that it does permit divorce. Right? What did Moses command you, verse 3? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Uh, send her away is simply the same word for divorce that's used throughout Mark. Send away and divorce are equivalent terms. So he permitted them to write a bill of divorce and divorce her. Send her away. That was what the law said. Um, But you notice the difference between how Jesus said his question and how they state the response. What did Moses command you on this issue? They said, well, he allowed divorce. And I think Jesus is really bringing that question to bear again. I asked you, what did Moses command about this question? And you went to Deuteronomy 24 and told me what he allows. But what he allows is not what God commanded about marriage. There's a command behind the command. There's a command behind the command that you are ignoring And the one you are pointing to is really only the divine permission that was given by God through Moses to account for your wickedness. Right? Jesus says, you cited Deuteronomy 24.1, but what you're not appreciating about that is Moses gave you that law on account of your hard-heartedness. There's a difference between what God commanded regarding marriage and what the law had to permit because of your wickedness. God didn't command you to divorce your wife for these reasons and send her away. God provided a provision in the case that this was done to protect the situation and to limit the damage that was being done. 
Jesus is essentially saying to them, Moses never said to you, send your wife away if if you find some indecency in her. Moses never said that. And if we listen to Deuteronomy 24.1, that's not what it says. Right? Listen to it again. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. The law is saying, if this happens, this is the result. And Jesus is saying, why did Moses have to give that law? It was because of your hard-heartedness. It's because there were people in Israel who were doing this. The law was given on account of this sinful situation to limit the damage done by it. But the law was never excusing this conduct. As one person put it, the law taught, taught that divorce was tolerated, but it was not authorized or sanctioned for any old reason. And that's what Jesus is pointing them back to. Moses had to give you this law on account of your wickedness. On account of your wickedness, your hard-heartedness, in order to protect the wife who's been put away. A bill of divorce was to protect the wife who'd been sent away, so she would have some proof. My husband has sent me away. He has divorced me. He has severed the marriage relationship. And that bill of divorce would proclaim she has been divorced by her husband and it's now lawful for her to remarry. She may remarry because her husband has sent her away. And that law was protecting her so that she would have something to show that she has not left her husband. He's divorced her, that she's not a married woman who cannot remarry, but she's free to remarry. That law was written to account for the hard-heartedness of Israel that would do these things and to make sure that the wife was protected if she was sent away by her husband. So she would have the right to remarry. But Jesus is saying to these experts in the Bible, you don't know how to read your Bibles. Moses never wrote this to authorize this conduct. He wrote it to protect people who were victims of this kind of hard-heartedness. To protect people who were treated this way. In that sense, it was a gracious provision. As one person put it, to limit sinfulness and control its consequences as a merciful concession for the woman's sake. And when Jesus said it was because of your hard-heartedness, he's using a category that the Pharisees would have recognized, that the Israelites would have recognized, as a law that was given by Moses on account of the hardness of hearts of the people. What the laws given by Moses reveal, as one person put it, is what a vicious society they were in. It was a vicious society that Moses was governing, And there were times that all he could do because of their hardness of heart was to impose certain safeguards. Jesus was saying he gave that law to protect people from your hard-heartedness. But that was not the command he gave regarding marriage. He said, you experts of the law should have known that to to really recognize the command that he gave about marriage, you had to go back before Deuteronomy 24. 
not the law that Moses gave there to deal with the hardness of hearts of people regarding marriage. You have to go back further to the command that was recounted by Moses back in Genesis, to the first command God gave about marriage. And that's what Jesus is doing by going back to Genesis in verses 6 through 8 of our text. Going back to Genesis and saying, there you find the command of God concerning marriage. There you find the command that should have governed how you interpreted later provisions of the law. And what does Jesus say about what Genesis taught about marriage? Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus is saying there was a command behind the command of Deuteronomy. There was a command that came earlier about marriage from our God. It's this profound covenant union that happens between a man and woman. It's a profound thing to say that a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Uh, maybe we're so familiar with those words that we don't, we don't really know or, or appreciate the punch that they would have made in the Israelite ear. Because they would have been raised from an early age to know your first duty is to the Lord. And the next duty under the duty you owe to the Lord is the duty that you owe to your parents. The next greatest duty behind the duty we owe to our God is the duty we owe to our parents. Maybe your parents are elbowing your children. Are you listening to this? Uh, this is the duty you owe to mom and dad. But it's important, right, for the, for the sake of society to know that we have to answer to God and that we have to answer to the parents that he's given to us, the first relationship we have as we come into the world. And so for God to say, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, is to say there's a new powerful covenant bond that's being formed in marriage. You'll actually leave your parents to cling to your wife. It says something about the, the sanctity of that covenant relationship, the gravity of it that you will leave these parents to whom you owe that duty in that sense and you'll cling to your wife. Holding fast to her is covenant language. It's covenant language. We hear it all over the Old Testament about how Israel is to cling to the Lord, but just one example I think will suffice from Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 through 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and your length of days. Holding fast to him, for he is your life and your length of days. And Jesus is saying there's something profound there in the book of Genesis about what God is saying about marriage. That the husband is holding fast to his wife. And we can even say he's holding fast to his wife because she is his life. Right? The two become one flesh. 
Sometimes we regard this passage in Genesis as merely a description of what happens in marriage. What happens in marriage? The husband leaves his parents, he he clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. But that's the reality of what happens in marriage. It is a description, but it's also a command. It's the divine decree concerning marriage. This is what a husband and wife should do, and this is what will result That's why when we talk to people who are considering marriage about marrying, we remind them that there are three parties to the marriage. Not just the husband and the wife, but God as well. God is the one that cements that union. God is the one who creates that one fleshness between the husband and wife. He brings them together. And Jesus brings that forward by saying, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Right, that it's a union that God has affected. It's a union that God has brought about. And marriage as he intended it, as he commanded it from the beginning, was considered something that was permanent and indivisible. The two have become one flesh. That the husband's life is his wife's and her life is his. They've been brought together by the Lord in that way. And he sees how Jesus is bringing this to bear on the situation that the Pharisees raised. What is involved in that marriage? It's God essentially saying, I have joined them together. And if I have joined them together, then a mere man should not come along and separate that. It's the comparison between the God who's joining and the man who's trying to separate. What God has joined together, man ought not to separate. And Jesus is saying, this is the hardness of heart that this command is really exposing. The hardness of heart that exists among the people is divorce as a human decision attempting to undo the union that God has created. That's the real problem with divorce that Jesus is showing here. That it represents really, as one person put it, an underlying unwillingness to submit to God's law and his will concerning marriage. Now we know that God does permit divorce under certain circumstances. We can think of those that are provided in scripture, such as in cases of adultery or abandonment. But Jesus is not talking about that here. He's talking about this prevalent view promoted by people like the Pharisees that almost anything will justify grounds for divorce. And Jesus is saying that is not the way it was from the beginning. Jesus is talking about situations where there are no God-given grounds. And Jesus says, don't misunderstand these laws that were given to deal with your sinfulness. Do not justify your sinfulness. The laws given to regulate divorce do not justify your divorce for any reason. And to the Pharisees in particular, this is a condemnatory word from Christ, saying you are the experts in the Bible, you should know better than to interpret the Bible the way you're interpreting it. Like how one person put it, Deuteronomy 24.1 is not about what constitutes a pious divorce but rather about regulating the unacceptable problem that occasioned divorce in the first place. 
since the holy God put the two together and made them one flesh himself, let no hard-hearted and adulterous human separate them. That's really what Jesus is saying. And that's why Jesus confirms this teaching to his disciples in private. When they, again, when they go to the house together, they're away from the crowds, away from the Pharisees, they ask him about this. Because this probably would have sounded radical in their ears as well. This was not the predominant view. And Jesus reinforces that, that teaching with them in private and brings that teaching to his logical conclusion. If we understand that in, in, in Jewish circumstances, the questions of divorce and remarriage were connected. To be divorced was to be given the right of remarriage. So some people have thought, well, Jesus talks about divorce, and now he's talking about remarriage. This is all the same topic. Jesus is just applying his teaching regarding marriage here with his disciples. He's not changing the subjects. He's applying the teaching that he's given. And what does he say to his disciples in private? And in the house, verse 10, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Um, Jesus is saying, if you cannot sever what God has joined together, and you persist in doing it unlawfully, then it's not recognized by God. And the person who does it and then goes off and remarries as if they're free to remarry is actually committing adultery against their first spouse because they did not have the grounds to do what they did. They have severed what God says he has joined together. And in God's sight, they are still be, they are behaving as if they are sinful married people. And it's, it would have been radical to them that Jesus says that both about husbands and about wives. Um, if you've noticed as we've gone along, we've always been referring to the man sending, sending the woman away. And maybe some of you have thought, well, what about the women sending the men away? Well, that wasn't allowed in Jewish law. Um, that's part of what made what Herodias did in marrying Herod so scandalous. Not only had she divorced her husband to marry her husband's brother, but she had initiated the divorce, which was just unheard of under Jewish law. You just weren't allowed to do it. And so it was doubly scandalous to the Jews that she did that. Only under Roman law could a wife divorce a husband. And that's why these words are important of Jesus coming to Mark's audience, which would have been a primarily Roman audience, to recognize it doesn't matter who's doing it whether it's the husband or the wife who does it, if you divorce without biblical grounds, the Lord will look on you as an adulterer if you remarry. He's bringing home the force of this sin and revealing once again the source of the problem is really hard-heartedness. That's the problem that this passage really brings out. That God's people, even when they were constituted in the nation of Israel, even back then, had to have all kinds of laws to regulate their hard-heartedness. And marriage and divorce is just one example. It was their hard-heartedness that made them reject David, made them reject God as king and want a king like the nations. There are all sorts of examples of their hard-heartedness 
that God accommodated, that God passed provisions and laws for them to regulate their hard-heartedness, impose certain sanctions to limit the damage done. But what does this passage reveal to us about the people of God? What is the real problem that we have? It's our hard-heartedness. It's our unwillingness in any number of ways to submit to God's will and God's law. And what is Jesus revealing to us here? Moses couldn't really solve that problem. Right? What could Moses do about the hard-heartedness of God's people? He could make certain provisions. And it's a testimony to the goodness of God that he made provisions to protect women, imposed safeguards like a bill of divorce, and imposed other laws that would provide for their wickedness and their weakness to account for their hard-heartedness. Moses could address it through laws. He could try to limit the damage in that sense, to recognize the hard-heartedness and to try to treat it with these kinds of safeguards. But what could Moses never do? He could never address the real problem. And what is the problem? It's our hardness of heart. It's our unwillingness to do what God has called us to do. To do what we want to do rather than what he wants us to do. Moses has no solution for that problem. And so what does Jesus do as he comes into the world? He reveals himself to be the God who comes to solve the problem. Not to just merely regulate it and try to limit the damage that hard-heartedness does. Jesus comes into the world and he solves the problem. He provides the solution to the hard-heartedness of his people. And how does he provide that solution? He does it first by coming into the world as the true Israel of God. Here for the first time is an Israelite who does the will of God. Who has no hard-heartedness. Who never fails to keep the laws that God has given. It's almost a way in which we can say the whole people of God have been reduced down to here is the only one faithful one. He is the true Israel of God. There's no hard-heartedness in him. He does the will of his Father with his heart and with his soul and with his mind and with his strength. He is the true Israel of God. And he comes into the world as the true bridegroom. What does Paul drive home for us? The marriage picture is so profound because it pictures to us the relationship of Christ and his church. And what has Jesus done? He's left his father's house to hold fast his bride, to become one flesh with her, right? Literally become one flesh with his people. He took on our human nature that he might do for his bride what needed to be done. Take on our one flesh so that in that one flesh he might hunt sin out of it until he destroyed it. So that he might purify and sanctify his bride. 
He is the true bridegroom who holds fast and never lets us go. And that's what he's on his way to do in Jerusalem. To lay down his life for his people. To die on the cross there for all of our hard-heartedness. And all of the sin and the misery that it's wrought in our lives and in the world. He comes to die on the cross to deal with it. To take it away. And so that by faith he might not only take our sin, our hard-heartedness and its consequences on himself, but might deliver over to us all of the goodness that's ever flowed out of his perfect heart. To impute to us his holiness and his righteousness that flowed out of the righteousness of his heart. To make that ours by faith. So that by grace through faith, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Just as if we had never sinned or been sinners. And just as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. So that when the Father looks at us, he sees no hard-heartedness, but only the purity of our Savior. And he pours out his Spirit on us to replace our hard-hearted hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. So that we would pour forth good works and have a heart that's turned to do God, to do God's will and to love him and to serve him. Jesus comes to solve the problem. That's the glory of his kingdom. And John the, John the apostle recognized this when he sang to the Lord's glory that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was good. It addressed the hard-heartedness. It addressed the wickedness, but it couldn't solve it. But what John recognizes under the influence of the Holy Spirit, here is the one who solves the problem. Here is not law, but grace and truth. This is what God's people need. This is what the king has come to provide. This is what Messiah as chief prophet and teacher teaches us. I have come to make you whole. Praise the Lord for our Savior who comes in grace and truth to save us and to serve us and to solve the problem that we could not solve ourselves. Praise his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we need so desperately the remedy that Christ applies to our souls. How sad we are once again to read about the hard-heartedness of your people, to recognize it's not just hard-heartedness in the world, but amongst your people there is hard-heartedness, that even amongst your people, Israel under Moses, despite what they'd seen and the blessings that they'd received, they were still in so many ways a vicious society that needed to be restrained by the law. We thank you, Lord, that in our hard-heartedness you sent us a Savior who can save us from ourselves who can apply the remedy that we need. We thank you that he came into the world leaving your house and clings to us in love still, that our humanity, our own flesh is in heaven, testifying to us that that's a place for people, human beings, body and soul. 
that there is one perfected soul who has ascended there, body and soul, our Lord Jesus Christ, and promises that through his resurrection and through his life and his death and through his ascension and the gifts of the Spirit that he's poured out, we can be assured that heaven is a place for us as well. We recognize in this life we will always be split in two in a sense, the old hard-heartedness that still dwells in our members, warring against that pure heart that dwells in us by the Spirit. We pray that you would help us by the Spirit to put to death the old self and to bring the light, the new to life more and more. But we know that we only have the promise of hope because of what Christ has accomplished. We thank you for his willingness to leave your side and to come and join himself to us despite all of the misery and the suffering and the death that would bring to him that he might bring us to life and to light. We praise his name. We pray that we would all put our trust and faith only in him and hear us for we pray in his name. Amen.